3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Lauren, and good morning, listeners. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Morning, Genevieve. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. This does feel strange. You're right. (laughs) Definitely. This is the first time me and Lauren have actually had an intro conversation before and we've only met like a few days ago properly and to me on zoom is very I feel like it's just the new normal at the moment yeah for sure I feel sorry for anybody starting um like a job or anything during this period definitely oh my god interviews you just feel a bit more nervous yeah yeah Yeah. body language accounts for so much I think I didn't realize before this period hmm yeah, definitely. And with the masks, you don't, is are masks mandatory where you are? Sorry, Lauren. Lauren isn't in metropolitan Melbourne at the moment. <laughs> um, they're not mandatory in regional Victoria, but they are mandatory at courts. And because I spend most of my day in court, um, I have been wearing them all day and it is a really weird feeling. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like when you take it off, you still feel like it's on for like the next few hours. Yeah. It's like you wait and when you wear a hat. Yeah. yeah. And just that fear of, not, of people not fully comprehending your tone and your, um, I don't know, the way that you mean things. Maybe that's, maybe I'm just overthinking probably. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like um, I was talking about it with my friends and a really good, one of the reasons why the, a silver lining to it, I guess, is when you're going for a walk, you can like, mouth out your like song or your lyrics to your yeah. song and have a good old like lip sync I guess underneath your Actually mask and... yourself fully D- yes yeah. <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah which has been fun but apart from that <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely um now on the show today we've got a few things coming up I've done an alternative news segment I've decided to do it on the theme of resilience and I kind of do a bit of a juxtaposition I'd bring in um an exploration on Karen I guess the Karen meme and then I kind of mirror that on a really good article that was written um in the Guardian about Indigenous Australians resilience and survival not that they have anything in common at all but I thought Karen being so relevant at the moment would be important yeah. to mention. Yeah. Um, and then Carly from Thursday Breakfast has very kindly given us her interview with Fitzroy Legal Service, uh, Emma, Dr. Emma Russell and Jill Faulkner. And they talk about um, the new research they've done into women's criminalization and remand, which is really oh, interesting. I was at their, well, at, I was on their um, webinar launch and um, I can't wait to read the report. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read the report um, like a couple of weeks ago and it's just like so interesting, especially with the whole, um, the new 
oh, I don't do law. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know much of the words, but um, the new policy they made about um, bail and remand and how that's ref- affected um, women exactly. And, yeah. 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 The bail laws are really, um, I think it's like one of the starkest examples we have of that just disproportionate impact. Um, and certainly women. Yeah. I think that'll be a really great interview for that reason. Yeah, no, definitely. It sounds really good. I had a little bit of a listen. And I've also put in um, a, so this is, this isn't based in Australia. It's actually based in Canada, in America, but um, Indigenous Rights Radio, uh, it's a program called Cultural Survival Indigenous Radio. And um, the interviewer speaks to Kathy Fournier. She's an Indigenous uh, Canadian woman. And she talks about how Indigenous identity actually helped her with her health. She was battling cancer. Um, but yeah, it's a really good interview. Um, yeah, what have you got coming up, Lauren? I know you've done an interview as well. Oh, I have such a nice, you know, sometimes you do an interview and you just get off the phone and you think like, I feel full from yeah. that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so this wonderful woman called Ada Sehan, um, she's a lawyer um, and policy researcher in Melbourne. She has founded um, a sort of, well, it's called a mahala, and what we learn in this interview is that mahala means neighbourhood in Arabic, and so it's sort of a hub um, for the Middle Eastern and Anatolian diasporas in Melbourne. Um, and she's just got some really great stuff going on, and yeah, it's a very um, beautiful interview. Oh, awesome! Yeah. On my own, it sounds like a really arrogant thing to say, but it was all about her. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> of course, no. Um, that sounds great. All right, well um i'll let the show roll on now but thanks for chatting lauren it was nice to chat to you finally (laughs) yeah enjoy the rest of your day I don't sit with a limit, I push the killers involved. Top of the skin, the beauty just come from the know. Studio living like all dreaming abroad. Yeah, mama just told me be different. I wanted to be living now. We were just wide eyes, so stupid to fall. Knew could I was, the scene was different, I glowed. Poison like I be attention, not to good on. But you was doing them all, skipping attention, feelings caught. You was off your head. Real niggas just hold it down. No, no sweat, no tears, just glad. But I was your first and you and mine. I think it was so lovely to know that you cared. Going to parties, I fell on the lens, I saw. Hit it off with all the niggas, damn, it felt so special, but nothing lasts forever so when i wait delete it all your numbers no sweat tears i only care they go by they go by take time but can't take no bit out for me i cry you know i you know i watch that sun kiss listen i don't fall in i cry don't look don't sit don't touch it don't look don't look it don't sit don't touch it don't look don't look it don't sit don't touch it don't look don't look it don't sit don't touch is a model, and nobody pushing alone wolf not to follow. Had to get out of the sink and ship you as hoppers. Told me to leave me behind and stop you with shuttleless. Shut up and run it, bitch. Set up on elevator to conquer it. Self made, gliding, no sweat. Hide, hide, no tears, I don't hold back. Contest if you can, better fall back. So I was a wallflower, and I died for the whole downs. And you so I was different, hiding out from the whole town. So I lost and didn't pick it, I'd be finding my own now. While sitting on the bus and saying, much the limits, I don't see. Running blindfolded, gliding through with a slipping off. Madeline, I'm staying in a minute, I'll take them off. Like it when I shook it, it's my tea when I'm ticking off. Take a bite, take a bite, take time, but can't take no bit out for me. I cry. You know I, 
a song by TK Meitzer and Hoodboy called Glide. Hey all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline, or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone, or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. our listeners, it's time for another segment of Alternative News. So this week, I was thinking about our tendency to, when times are tough, usually reflect on people or events or times that humans have prevailed. It gives us a formula or procedure to follow whilst also reassurance that humans have survived through pretty awful things and that we always find a way to thrive and grow. Now, in saying this, I'm seeing the odd post on social media that aims to, I guess, tell off the people complaining about being stuck at home and it usually references the hardships of the world wars and living through the Great Depression and the Spanish flu and blah, blah, blah. Kind of looking at how our ancestors survived somehow better than we are doing. But you really don't have to look that far into the past to know people, yes, are in fact resilient. Refugees, Indigenous communities, immigrants and BIPOC people 
already have a well-equipped toolkit of resilience because quite fairly, they've had to. How mind-numbing it would seem to hear privileged Westerners yarp on about the atrocities of not being able to go to the store and have everything in stock or go out for a ritzy meal or a beer or have to wear a face masks. My God, the entitlement is stifling. I will rant about this later, but I'd like to explore why many individuals, particularly in Western culture, have really struggled to accept and abide by rules set out to protect them. Are they really demanding freedom above all else for the safety of others? Or is it through a lack of exposure to real threat that has left us a little defenseless in the face of traumatic events? I then want to mirror this idea with groups that have endured great trauma, yet survived. Indigenous Australians have survived atrocities faced against them ever since the British invasion, thrived in a world stacked against them. Where are their stories when we talk about coronavirus resilience? I guess to make sense of what entitlement in pandemic times looks like, go no further than the popular Karen meme at the moment. First used to describe a middle-aged white woman guaranteed to ask, can I speak to the manager if things do not exactly go her way, but has now morphed into a symbol for white supremacy and officious white women. Obviously, not everyone is a Karen, but Karen acts as a pretty scary sign that some individuals really struggle when things do not go their way. Karen is merely a byproduct of capitalism and consumerism, maybe gone a little too far. Freedom to do whatever we want, say whatever we want, and consume whatever we want is a God-given right, right? How dare we have to change our lives because the world is being overcome by a virus we have never encountered before and therefore must take precautions to save lives and ensure everyone is safe? Seems a little rich to me. Besides the racism and classism that Karens ensue, their response is towards what they think is a threat. The fact of how grossly over-exaggerated and biased their idea of what a threat is, it does show us that Western society is not well-trained when it comes to responding to threats or trauma. Years of comfortability have taught the privileged to channel their fight or flight and stresses into quite small and insignificant avenues at times. This isn't to say that they don't deeply affect people, but because life hasn't been filled with thinking when's my next meal coming or putting a roof over my head, the privileged resort to other means of stress. Therefore, COVID, an unforeseen virus, becomes a huge thing to worry and stress about and feel entitled to whatever you want because you feel in danger. And unless you've had personal experience with trauma before, your reaction can usually actually take you by surprise. People go into survival mode, naturally, when there's been a war, people stuck up on essentials and look at ways to navigate themselves away from danger. But because of our very different lifestyles and increasing independence and disconnect from community, this has transformed into everyone for themselves. We all know how unhelpful this approach is with an opponent that is not biased to whom it infects. 
How effective we respond partially has to do with our resilience. And resilience comes from experience. Some may say no pain, no gain. And it's true in a sense. Just like a body builds some level of immunity to viruses, the body also builds resilience to trauma. But instead of looking back on the bloody wars, look no further than the resilience of our own Indigenous Australians. In an article written for The Guardian, Indigenous Australian Melissa Lukashenko describes how it is no accident that Black Australia is surviving in pandemic times. Because quite frankly, survival is what they do. She explains the false assumption many Australians would make about how awful the COVID-19 pandemic has been on Indigenous Australians. When in fact, after generations of living as colonised Indigenous people, Lukashenko explains there are certain things you must learn. About exclusion, for instance, and the meaning of marginalisation. And about how to distinguish necessity from luxury and truth from lies. About how to survive generation after generation of externally imposed hard times. Emphasising the fact that there is much more to the Aboriginal story than just suffering. And that COVID has been both easier in an adaptability sense for Indigenous Australians, but also harder in a privilege sense. The toilet paper saga is a great example of privilege at its finest. Lukashenko berates the predominantly white suburbanites that couldn't bear the thought of not being able to wipe their own ass with something as soft as quilting. She explains the humour of this when Indigenous Australians wholeheartedly accept that maybe some newspaper, a piece of bark or some rags would realistically do the same job. As the virus broke out, Indigenous communities and organisations sprung into action to protect their most vulnerable Lockdowns were enforced even before the government advised. A near toothless auntie with silver hair was roped in to deliver the message that COVID was really serious. Materials were rapidly produced in multiple Indigenous languages for those with limited or no English. The faces in all of these videos had to be Indigenous Australians as they had to be grassroots faces because most Indigenous people have very little reason to trust white authority. Much speculation about the virus within Indigenous communities was formed through similarities between Australia's colonial history. So during the British invasion in 1788, smallpox ran out of control through Indigenous communities, devastating the population. There are still no answers to if this was done with purpose to wipe out Indigenous Australians or an accident. Lukashenko explains this biological warfare is not new to Indigenous Australians. It's merely an extension of our over-policing Indigenous communities or defunding Indigenous organisations or ignoring the insanely high incarceration rates. The Stolen Generation is also an echo of the Australian government's attempts to destroy Indigenous culture, stories and communities. It's by far no accident that black health workers and volunteers had worked tirelessly at the start of the pandemic to protect Indigenous culture, stories and communities as they knew the Australian government wouldn't. It is a means to survival. 
Indigenous Australians have prevailed through the Ice Age, then British invasion, poverty, child removal, genocide, capitalism, and have often actually thrived. Lockdowns imposed due to COVID has forced us into our homes. The middle class has sometimes even likened this to being imprisoned or trapped while sitting comfortably, of course, on their lush leather couches with Uber Eats and Netflix, seems a little inconsiderate of the term. When many Indigenous Australians are locked up without fair trials, and also when poverty within these communities can ignite a feeling of being trapped inside the cage of capitalism. Lukashenko sarcastically begs people to cry her a river. She states the ISO most Australians have come through is laughably easy, compared with being locked in a racist white institution with your psych meds abruptly ripped away, without family visits, without anyone who speaks your Aboriginal language, sans power or dignity or human rights. As supermarkets become became chaotic and people feared of food supplies diminishing, Lukashenko explains Indigenous Australians were quick to remind themselves that they had always lived off the land and the majority who still have access to land still do. During the Black Lives Matter protests, it seemed like Indigenous Australians would finally be given the room to speak upon their own trauma. Instead of being drowned out by the sound of manic shoppers punching on in aisles to get the last bag of pasta, but then to be labelled self-indulgent and irresponsible when taking to the streets, dog whistling about demonstrations while supermarkets opened as malls were full of shoppers and schools accepted pupils back it's transparently not about public safety and it's pretty ironic it enforces the idea that no the government really does not believe black lives matter so resilience stems from how you choose to survive in times of hardship for indigenous australians this hardship is ongoing but for many of us, this type of resilience hasn't had to be enforced onto us. We have mostly been offered a pretty convenient life. The opportunities live at your doorstep, waiting only to be let in. The fight for life is real and hard, and part of what it means to be human. And resilience can help you take great strides with enjoying the not-so-nice times. You can think of resilience as a set of skills that can be, and often is, learned. Part of that skill building comes from exposure to very difficult but manageable experiences. If you would look at the pandemic as providing any sort of silver lining, it would be flexing our amazing ability to survive and prevail. It's also the perfect time to feel connected to your community, friends and family. A real credit to the resilience of Indigenous Australians is their deep sense of community and willing to help each other out in tough times Capitalism does seek to divide this important component of resilience, but we really have the ability and now the perfect opportunity in our second lockdown to work on that and work on ourselves. Looking like a prison, your mom.
mama at the table crying all her head gone. Feeling fishy, finding chemo, smoking seaweed for calm. These Disney movies too close. You title email, no name. Thank you for your sweet telephone. It saves lives. The secret is I'm actually broken. I tried to raise a healing, kneeling at the edge of the ocean. Somebody, somebody said it saves lives. Close my hand and let I think the glass half full. Who bring me back to Inglewood? I shouldn't bleed this good. Holy conundrum. I'm the prayer to hope the bank account wishing loan for my loved ones. Tell them no names still don't got no money. Tell them no name almost passed out drinking. Secret is she really think it saves lives. Somebody hit D'Angelo. I think I need him on this one. Brothers and sisters, mamas, cousins, uncles, everyone missing somebody. Dancing daylight. I know it's made from clay But if I have to go, I pray my soul is still eternal And my mama don't forget about me I pray my mama don't forget about me I pray my granny don't forget about me I know everyone goes someday I know my body's fragile, know it's made from clay But if I have to go, I pray my soul is still eternal And my mama don't forget about me song by No Name called Don't Forget About Me on her Room 25 album. Melbourne's local documentary film festival is going online and nationwide from the 30th of June until the 15th of July, canvassing an eclectic range of documentaries from South by Southwest, Slam Dance and Tribeca to Music, video games and true crime with over 55% locally made in Melbourne and across Australia. Check it out at www.mdff.org.au. Prices start from $8 a stream. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
parameters of a new report a constellation of circumstances, the drivers of women's increasing rates of remand in Victoria, urge a review of Victoria's strict bail laws, stating that decreases in prisoner numbers observed during the COVID-19 pandemic should be sustained and extended into the future. The report published by Fitzroy Legal Service and the Trobe Centre for Health, Law and Society examined data from the Bail and Remand Court and analysed court observations and found that policing has become tougher under Victoria's new bail regime, significantly impacting on the rate of women being remanded. Today, I speak with Dr Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service. The contents of this interview do not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Thanks, Carly. Thanks for the introduction. So, Emma, can you first start by telling listeners how this report came about? Yeah, sure. Um, So, as you mentioned, um, the report came out of a research project um, conceived and conducted collaboratively between Fitzroy Legal Service myself at La Trobe University and um, two other academics at Deakin University, Bree Carlton and Danielle Tyson. Um, So the main um, reason why we did this research was because of the significant growth in women's rates of remand in Victoria. So over the past five years, um, you know, the the rate at which women were going into custody unsentenced um, was outstripping, the increase was outstripping that of men. So it was a very uh, gendered increase. And yeah, over the past decade, um, the number of women entering prison in Victoria each month had tripled. So a very strong trajectory of growth that's very gendered and very racialized as well because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, are significantly overrepresented um, in the prison system as a whole, but also specifically on remand. So Aboriginal women are the only cohort in, pr- in um, prison in Victoria who are more likely to be inside unsentenced than sentenced. Um, so we wanted to understand a bit more um, in detail about some of the, the mechanisms and the issues that were going on Um, you know, on the ground in the courtroom as to why women were going into custody before they were being sentenced. Mm. And a major focus of this report is on the effect that the 2018 changes had um, in the Victorian Bail Act. So can you talk a bit more about these changes? Yeah, so um, the 2018 changes to the Bail Act in Victoria um, came about um, following a um, review of the Bail Act um, conducted by Justice Coghlan um, in the aftermath of um, the horrific Burke Street Mall attack, which occurred in January 2017. Um, where six people were killed in um, Burke Street in the Melbourne CBD. Um, And this prompted reform to the Bail Act because um, the perpetrator of that attack was um, on bail at the time. So there was a lot of media outrage and public outrage and concern and fear. Um, 
that really made the Bail Act a target for reform in the aftermath. Um, but this, mean, this, this meant that um, the, these changes to the Bail Act were really driven by a very, very extreme um, and exceptional example of violence. So not um, the kind of... Uh, the kind of offences or, or crimes that are usually being dealt with um, or typically being dealt with under the Bail Act, but a very high profile and exceptional case of horrific violence. Um, so that meant that the changes to the Bail Act were really in a lot of ways driven by emotion and fear and meant that it was going to be a very kind of law and order or tough on crime response. And the, the main sort of change that happened was that um, more people are being put into the reverse onus position for bail. So instead of um, the assumption being that someone will be released on bail into the community after they're arrested for an offence or um, a series of offences, um, the reverse onus means that the assumption is that they will go into prison on remand um, and they have to make an argument as to why they shouldn't. So they either have to show um, a, com a compelling reason why they shouldn't, shouldn't go into custody unsentenced while awaiting um, their hearings or exceptional circumstances. And so the people having to meet those thresholds to be released on bail, um, those, those nets have really been widened. So... Um, when we were speaking to interviews as part of, we went, sorry, when we were speaking to lawyers um, in interviews as part of this study, um, the example that kept coming up and up again and again was that prior to these 2018 reforms being implemented, um, people having to show exceptional circumstances as to why they shouldn't um, go on, go into prison on remand. Um, was people charged with murder or with treason or drug trafficking, um, of like commercial quantities of drugs or terrorism offences. So a, a, a small number of very, very serious offences. Um, but then after these reforms, um, there's sort of some technical changes that mean that a lot more people now have to show exceptional circumstances. So if you're um, accused of committing a Schedule 2 offence while on bail for a Schedule 1 or 2 offence. Um, it basically means that um, if you're offending repeatedly and being granted bail and then breaching that bail or failing to appear in court, um, then you're committing an offence against the Bail Act, which then can basically lift you up or elevate you to this absolute highest threshold um, for being granted bail, which is exceptional circumstances. Um, so I guess lawyers like were consistently saying that following these reforms, that they've noticed a lot more women going um, into the cells in the, in the magistrate's court um, for offences that really don't warrant a term of imprisonment. So really, um, really kind of crimes of survival, um, not, uh, like things like shop steal or yeah shoplifting or um, uh, you know a breach of bail which can land them in, in custody whereas previously they might not have um, gone into prison on remand. 
Yeah, and I think that this report also highlights some of the really like negative impacts that these laws have created where now you speak about um, women spending dead time and then also actually pleading guilty for offences that they might not otherwise want to plead guilty for. Can you expand a bit more on that aspect of the report? Yeah, I mean, those issues that you mentioned, the issue of dead time and um, the kind of implicit uh, pressure to finalise matters. Yeah, these are really kind of um, like perverse justice outcomes because it, it means that, um, you know, I guess the, the system isn't working in a way that it aspires to work, which is, you know, um, I guess basic principles of proportionality um, or, you know, the presumption of innocence, all that, those kinds of things that are sort of meant to be the bedrock, right, of, of a legal system. But um, in this case, it suggests that um, those things, those kind of principles are being thwarted. So, um, you know, because of these really high thresholds um, for bail that um, more and more women are finding themselves having to meet um, in the courtroom, um, one, one option is to simply plead guilty at the outset um, and be sentenced straight away um, rather than trying to get out on bail so that a lawyer can work with you to prepare your case and that and police will gather evidence and all that kind of stuff. Um, so one lawyer that we spoke to um, raised the issue that, um, you know, this really means that police aren't being held to full scrutiny. So police can lay charges, arrest someone, and then if they're in the except exceptional circumstances um, category, um, and instead, you know, that, that um, turns someone off applying for bail, um, then they're just, they, and so they just finalise the matter, then the police are never actually going to be held to account to prove the charges that they've laid. So the, lo the level of accountability on police um, is much lower if matters are just being finalised at the first instance. Um, and of course, you know, there can be some advantages um, or you can understand why people might just want to finalise their matters at the first instance to avoid going into custody. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but then, you know, it has these flow-on effects um, where police aren't being held to account. Um, and then, you know, the dead time is you know, because remand um, is, is really increasing um, and more so following these 2018 reforms, people will spend more time um, in custody unsentenced than they'll ever receive um, for their sentence when it finally is um, heard before the judge. So um, someone might be in on remand for seven days because they've been in the exceptional circumstances category um, and you know it just takes a while for matters, matters to be heard and then when the judge finally does look at um, their charges um, the judge will say well this didn't even warrant time in custody or you know I, I would only sentence you to one day in custody but someone spent seven days they've just spent all this time um, in prison when they never would have um, received that length of time in prison on a sentence. Mm. 
And now, Jill, I want to go to you. Um, and can you speak about the devastating effects that women entering custody can have, even if it's on remand and even if it's for a short period of time? Absolutely, Kelly. So I think, you know, when we look at the experiences of women who are presenting in the cells and applying for, for bail, um, you know, these women, it's not that they have discreetly offended. Um, these women have often got histories, you know, where they've been responding to family violence, where they might have had their children removed. Um, often there are mental health issues. More predominantly, these women are also homeless. So even a short time in custody means that women's lives are completely disrupted. Um, and so uh, having issues in your life that compound the challenges that kind of impoverish women, that make women more vulnerable, means that there's such a disruption to their life. Often we see women whose children are then actually removed, um, you know, when they've been the primary carer. We may see women who have um, low-level mental health distress, you know, whose mental health issues become much more exaggerated um, and much more debilitating. Um, it could be that women have been responding to violence over, you know, a cumulative time. There's no relief for that, you know, like custody is not, um, custody is not a rehabilitative process that women particularly going into remand, um, are generally not eligible for programs, etc. Their life is disruptive. They've got, you know, states of ill ease and there's really nothing that's rehabilitative or responsive um, to them in that particular stage. And then there's the trauma beyond their own interpersonal trauma of being incarcerated. And there's very little kind of acknowledgement of the traumatic effects of incarceration, what that means for women. And yet, we disrupt women's lives. Women suffer overwhelming results as um, a consequence to incarceration. And there's very little kind of opportunities for women to make sense of that, to make meaning of that. Our service system generally can't respond in ways that are transformative and healing for these women. So it's not just that women also kind of suffer these experiences, but also their children in terms of being removed. And I actually want to go back to that point that you made, that there is this perception that people who experience the world in ways that are often diagnosed as mental illnesses are better off in custody. And that was a really big point that was made in the report. And um, Lawyer 10, as it's stated in the report, reflected if fair, so women are really, really unwell, then often we find that the mental health services are saying, well, they're better off in custody because there's so little guarantee in the community that they're going to be treated or admitted if failed to an ambulance for inpatient assessment. It just seems like a real indictment on the mental health system, that it's better for them to be in custody or that it is what the mental health services are telling us. Jill, can you comment a little bit more on that? Um, yes, I, personally, I find it an outrageous circumstance that we would be advocating for women to be criminalised because our service system is, doesn't have the capacity to respond. You know, I find that outrageous. Um, and I think, you know, like one of the things I observed um, in the magistrate's court was that particular magistrates had a propensity to refer women for a treatment order. Um, and so there were numbers of women who were uh, given bail on the condition that they, you know, that they travel via ambulance for um, an assessment in a mental health institution. 
you know, often they may be assessed and they may well be medicated, but they will also be released quite quickly, you know, back into a community where there are very little systems and structures or safety, you know, which just exacerbates um, their condition, you know, that we would think that um, incarcerating someone uh, in a prison is somehow uh, going to be responsive to their mental health distress, you know, doesn't make any sense to me, you know, I think um, what we're doing is we're criminalising mental health. So we're criminalising poverty, we're criminalising mental health. I think that's completely unacceptable. And if I also look at the experiences of women um, who are incarcerated, often there's an experience of early childhood trauma. It might be sexual abuse or violence or some kind of neglect with direct links to further re-victimisation, you know, through family and domestic violence. Um, those situations, you know, we come to know as complex developmental trauma and the impact of trauma on women's lives is that, you know, their behaviour becomes a reflection of trying to respond as a survivor to these overwhelming experiences. So it seems inhumane for me, to me, for us to consider that criminalising these women, incarcerating them, is any kind of just response. What these women need is safety, security, predictability, um, and that occurs when you have your own home, when you have the kind of support that is non-judgmental, but that's prepared to be alongside you, to, sort of, to support you in moments of distress, to make meaning of that. Not incarceration, which is often isolating. And what I notice is that when someone's distress becomes elevated in Dame Phyllis Frost Center, for example, they may well be referred to the Marmac unit, but if their behavior um, is outside of a range that's considered um, appropriate, they'll then find themselves in lockdown and management. I don't think that kind of isolation is in any way reparative. No, absolutely not. And I mean, I'm continuously confused with that notion that, yeah, people who are working through their like mental health are better off in custody because a lot of people are spending short periods of time in prison. So, like, of course, we need to be working on these solutions outside of prisons. Um, this is this notion, yeah, that people can go into prison and they'll be fixed. It's corrective. And we know that that's not the case at all. You're tuned into 3CR 855 on Tuesday breakfast and currently listening to an interview conducted by Carly with Dr. Emma Russell and Jill Faulkner about Fitzroy Legal Services' newly published research into women's criminalisation and remand. And now I actually want to go back to Emma and to speak about police discretion and bail. So there was part of the report that says since 2018, the Bail Act provides only for the court to grant bail for people required to meet the exceptional circumstances test, except in cases where the person is Aboriginal, a vulnerable adult or a child. And this means that if the accused is a member of one of these groups or if the accused is only required to show compelling reasons, police can still grant bail from the police station. Yeah, so the law does provide police with quite a bit of discretion in terms of, um, yeah, bailing people from the police station once they're arrested. Um, but what lawyers reported um, observing since the 2018 changes to the Bail Act is that um, police are much more hesitant to bail people direct from the police station um, and will be are more likely to just bring people into the court for a magistrate to make a decision. So they'll remand people 
bring them into the basement cells um, at the Melbourne Magistrates Court, for example, um, where they'll await um, making a bail application in front of a magistrate. Um, and, you know, so they, police do have to have some understanding of which test within the Bail Act someone will have to meet in order to be granted bail. Um, but lawyers perceived a just a, a kind of general confusion amongst police around what their capacities were to bail people from the police station, B, a real kind of risk-averse or overly cautious approach, particularly following um, the increased scrutiny upon bail practices after um, the Burke Street Mall attack in, in 2017, so that... Um, because criminal justice actors like police, like magistrates, etc., are scared or worried about making that a, a wrong decision, right, or a decision that means that they've granted someone bail who then goes on to commit, um, you know, a really atrocious act or horrific act. Um, instead, they'll just do what they perceive as erring on the side of caution and just remand someone into custody. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, that one particular case um, of Gargasoulis um, committing the homicides in Burke Street Mall, because that was such an exceptional and, you know, horrific instance of violence, um, it's really shaped... Um, decision-making and law-making across the whole system of bail and remand that impacts thousands and thousands of people, um, many of whom are engaging in very low-level kind of survival-based um, offending, right, that isn't a major threat to community safety, but um, the trend has been to move away from treating imprisonment as a last resort and towards... Um, I guess, putting people in custody as a way to um, try and prevent crime, right, which isn't meant to be or wasn't traditionally um, uh, meant to be a function of bail um, or bail and remand, but now um, everyone, it seems, is just much more risk-averse. And one thing that really gets lost in that kind of trend is that um, the harms of imprisonment or the harms of putting someone um, in custody unsentenced, um, they're really, that's really obscured or really um, deprioritised. And, you know, as Jill just outlined, it can be incredibly harmful and impactful and traumatic, um, especially for women, as we looked at in this study. Um, but that isn't prioritised in the way that it should be, um, in the way that that police and um, the courts are making decisions about bail and remand. Um, and almost, almost every time um, in the courtroom when we we're observing women apply for bail, police would oppose um, women's bail applications. So in 26 out of the 29 bail applications that women made um, that we observed, um, police would be arguing that the woman needs to go into custody, um, even in cases where it was, you know, very um, low-level survival-based offending. 
And now can either of you speak about the impact that COVID-19 has had on bail applications? Um, well, our observations in the court ceased as COVID-19 came in, but in terms of the work of Women Transforming Justice, um, our partnership between Fitzroy Legal Service, LACWA and Flat Out means that LACWA and Flat Out have been engaged in a legal, non-legal collaboration, um, really targeting um, supporting women to apply for bail. And so as COVID-19 came down, there was a huge adaptability and flexibility to trying to get as many women out of prison who were on remand as we could. And I think currently the women's prison population in Dainfellis Frost Centre is at a level where it was four years ago. So a number of women being able to have been granted bail in the community. However, the, as that time extends, you know, women who are really struggling with a, with a plethora of kind of challenges in their world, it becomes much more uh, difficult to try and support them to be able to have some kind of stability um, in the community while we wait for, you know, the rescheduling of matters. Um, and when, when someone doesn't have access to safe and secure housing, I think everything else is premised on that. Um, so certainly, yes, um, we've been able to get a lot more women out on bail, um, but it also has meant that there's an extra struggle around trying to develop some stability in those women's lives, particularly when also services tend to have retreated um, from the service system. So there is far less supports available um, that would have been possible pre-COVID. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add as well, like, as Jill mentioned, um, the women's prison population has declined since the declaration of the state of emergency in Victoria um, in March. So, you know, in just a matter of months, the numbers of women in prison have dropped by 27%. Um, like at the end of May, um, the numbers were 27% lower than they were at the end of May last year. So in a very short amount of time, um, the system has been able to um, really respond um, to, you know, the very serious concerns of um, a COVID-19 outbreak occurring inside prison and the risk that that would place incarcerated uh, people in or the risky situation, um, but also um, particularly the impacts of um, sustained lockdowns for people in prison due to the risk of COVID-19 and the absence of visits. So what we've seen in the last few months is um, what we haven't been seeing at all over the past couple of years is a real recognition um, in the courts, it seems, of the real harms and traumas of incarceration. And so more of an erring on the side of it's safer and a better option to uh, release women back to the community. Whereas, you know, as I've spoke about just before, um, the last few years has really seen a sh had really seen a shift the opposite way that, oh, it's safer and a better option for society to just keep remanding these people um, because, you know, that's the more cautious option. So um, what I think, uh, is important about these recent shifts towards um, towards less remand um, and less incarceration is that 
um, it's an opportunity to uh, recognise that incarceration is harmful, that it's risky, that it impacts people's health, it impacts um, their well-being, um, it absolutely shortens someone's lifespan and, you know, there's a body of evidence on that, on the long-term health impacts of incarceration and that we should be coming up with solutions in the community that mean um, that women and men and children uh, don't need to go into custody in the first place, that we can, um, we can create support networks in the community and um, our priority is to keep families together um, and, you know, keep people housed, get them the mental health um, and drug and alcohol support they need and so on. And so while we don't know, you know, a huge amount of detail of what's been going on in the courts um, during COVID, because as Jill mentioned, we did stop our fieldwork um, when the state of emergency was declared, um, the general trend in numbers shows that there has been a real shift away from using incarceration as a first resort and towards recognising that it's, it's really dangerous for individuals and communities. So we absolutely urge, um, I guess, the government, the broader services sector to really build on this um, opportunity for decarceration, so lessening prison numbers, um, reducing the number of people going into prison on remand, keeping people outside of prison, because this um, pandemic has really shown that it's possible where there's the will and the recognition. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you so much, Jill and Emma, for joining us um, on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Carly. Just then, I spoke with Dr Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service about a new report titled A Constellation of Circumstances, The Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Remand in Victoria. This report urges a review of Victoria's strict bail laws and states that decreases in prisoner numbers observed during the COVID-19 pandemic should be sustained and extended into the future. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR.
That was a song by Erica Badu titled Fall in Love and in brackets, Your Funeral. You're listening to 3CR Radio on 855 AM. Next up, you're going to hear an interview from Cultural Survival's Indigenous Radio, which is based in Canada and the US. The interview is with Kathy Fournier from the University of Toronto in Canada. She talks about how getting in touch with her Indigenous identity and the reconnection to the ancient ways of looking at health holistically helped her through her own battle with cancer. Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power. Because of colonization, many indigenous peoples face issues of identity. Sometimes it happens as a result of schooling or religion. Sometimes we question our indigeneity and perhaps with some reason. Each of us has a different past, a different coming together of events that has led to our existence. Cultural survival's Avishnim Kohti spoke to Cathy Fournier from the University of Toronto in Canada. Can you tell me your name, the nation you belong to, and what role do you have here at the, at the Vala School of Public Health? Sure. My name is Cathy Fournier, and, um, well, I'm not really... I guess I have a lot of questions about my own identity. I have some mixed blood, so I have, um, like, some French and Scottish on my father's side, and then on my mom's side we have uh, Métis and Mi'kmaq, and then there's possibly some other bloodlines connected to Mohawk. But a lot of those... So I didn't, but I didn't grow up traditionally or anything. I mean, I grew up with a very um, obsessively Christian mother who had mental health problems, and so I mostly lived with my grandparents. And we always heard stories, kind of quietly, about my, you know, my grandfather's family and his indigenous blood. But it was kind of like, you know, he 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 definitely looked indigenous, but. I, I, I don't think that people necessarily associate that I do and so it didn't really it wasn't really an issue in terms of you know saying who I was and at that point that was in the 60s I and mean, people it was I think a matter of I mean especially in my grandfather's generation and his father's generation it was a matter of safety and survival sometimes to to if you could pass for white then you know that's what you did so I mean my my grand parents, indigenous, that, that side of my family is connected to the land in Gaspé, Quebec, gaspé and um, also around the Ottawa Valley, Algonquin Territory. So, I mean, I guess I just, I feel, I'll just tell a little bit more about my family. Like, we know certain stories about my great-grandfather, so he, he spent time in, the, in um, the Black Hills with the Lakota people, studying so he he carried medicines like he knew medicines and I'm only just finding out some of these stories in the last year or two and he actually used to have like he did healing ceremonies and kind of in private in his back shed or something I I've had many health issues and most recently I had a like I had a pretty serious health issue I had cancer and 
So it's through that experience that I actually, because I'm not, I was never connected to Christianity. I was, um, yeah, pretty much the opposite of a Christian, I would say, if anything more pagan or, you know, as I was growing up. And I've also, because I've also practiced as a, a complementary, what's called a complementary alternative medicine practitioner. So I was a massage therapist for many years. And, you know, so I think like I always, you know, in my growing up years, my adult-ish years, I always, because of certain health issues, that biomedicine just didn't work for me. Like, I, they, there was no answers, and or I went, there was answers, but it didn't help. So I always was seeking further. And I think I always was, you know, more of a spiritual person. Like, I think my mom, she's a spiritual person, but she funneled it all into Christianity, and it suppressed, actually, a lot of her kind of, authentic spirit, you know, in some ways, which she's only just beginning to kind of regain. But anyways, I think I always kind of questioned, like, you know, the Western model of health, because it just didn't, didn't fit. So I sought out other types of care that did work. And then, you know, this most recent health experience, I, it's through that experience that I was able to connect, because as I said, I didn't grow up anything but I was able to connect through this program available in Ontario it's called an indigenous navigator program and it's through cancer care Ontario which is a very big you know kind of western organization but they have this new program where they have um, an indigenous navigator and if you self-identify as indigenous or a family member and you have a cancer diagnosis you can get access through them to a healer to an elder they will come with you to appointments and you know help you navigate so that you're able to smudge in the hospital and things like that. So it's through that experience that I guess I began to kind of search and well I guess that that was basically a healing journey that 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 was a start of another healing journey of kind of learning about yeah who I, who I am but like as a person but just my like my spirit like who who am I and where do I belong and because I think I always just yeah, just not really sure where I fit. I'm not quite sure how to identify, but I definitely feel a sense of belonging when I'm, because I guess, I'm gonna backtrack a little, sorry if I'm a bit all over the place, but through my experience with this Indigenous Navigator program, I became involved with a women's health, a women's resource, Native Women's Resource Center in, um, in the area. And through my work with a healer there, I have begun to, like I do volunteer there, I'm a Kalkanashkabewa, so a helper, I'm learning, so I'm actually helping with ceremonies and learning about ceremonies, so through my own experience of healing from cancer, I'm actually kind of learning to, um, I'm learning about the healing ceremonies, so I am I'm involved in, you know, working with, the, that, that center has a lot of women that are sex trapped sex traffickers or ex-sex traffickers or you know they've been incarcerated or they're just you know living in just like dire poverty mental mental health problems so we have this that we hold um healing ceremonies there at least once a month and there's many other events so i've become involved in that and i guess through what i've come to learn about health and um spirit and that is just that one of the main one of the things that to me is fundamental to health is this is a sense of, of community and belonging and that's something that you know through my my own healing 
computer theater at the center and then my own involvement with learning about the medicines and the ceremonies and things like that, but that's become a place where I feel part of I feel part of something. And that doesn't and, and it's kind of it's um it's circular. Like I'm so I'm there on my healing journey, but I'm also helping others. So it's kind of like this uh, I don't know, it's not like there's this, because I've also done lots of, you know, I've seen that I go see an oncologist, or, you know, it's a very, like, you know, you go in, they have the, the report on your tests, you sit there, you don't have the information, they do, you very, feel very powerless, they give you the results of your test, or, like, I've been for many years with psychotherapy, where there's, like, this very, so in both senses, there's this very clear line between you as the patient, or the one with the problem, and then them as the you know, the doctor or the, the therapist or whatever. And I guess I feel like that just how doesn't really, doesn't, I mean, I think it's got its useful side, but it just doesn't fit with my kind of sense of like health needs, which I guess for lack of a better word, I see is more, yeah, fundamentally holistic. It's not, and it's not even just your mind and your body and your spirit. It's like, you know, it's just interconnected with, all these things that we can't even see that are influencing us and that even like the collective unconscious like what Clay was talking about are you know these there's I think there's like there's thoughts or beliefs that are kind of floating around out there through all the things that we're bombarded with that I think and that includes from you know hundreds of years ago colonization but it's ongoing like that we're, we're bombarded with all this information that um, says we're not good enough or whatever so I think that um, yeah, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, did, uh, does that... So I guess, you know, the, the short of it is, I, for me, and I think for my experience, you know, of the things that I'm learning about, so I'm learning a lot of Ojibwe teachings in this, in this area in Toronto, and that's because that's the community that I've, that I've connected with. Um, and, but, yeah, I think that health is not just about, you know, like you can't bring it down to a microscopic level. I mean, I think there's maybe a place for that if, you know, you need to find out what kind of cancer you had or something. I mean, I don't know. I'm not even sure about that. But I think that, because it seems like we're going the opposite direction, like they want to, you know, define something to assess your risk of getting cancer and then you know like you're just kind of like turned into this object that they they divide down into smaller and smaller parts and look under a microscope and i guess i just think that boy the the, the further down the road that we go with that we just lose touch with so much because i feel that for for healing and health like it um yeah it's just much bigger than that and to reduce it to something else maybe is do something fundamentally vital to our existence, I would say. For more on the rights of indigenous peoples, visit cs.org and follow Cultural Survival on Facebook and Twitter. Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power. Let me tell you something. Uh, 
Don't touch me like that. Get mad when I fall in love too fast, too bad. Too bad. You did it. It's not your fault. We got caught up tripping. And don't you call me crazy. Why ain't you call me lately? Well, you know you my baby. You know I'm your lady. You be having me late night chilling, sitting all alone by the phone. Daddy come home, make me feel right when it's wrong. Who you know? Gonna do me like you? Right. Let me know when you finna come through. You got that good, good that wants some that need that. You know I want some, so let me know where you be at. Let me know where you be at. I hate it that you're no good for me. song by Rihanna J titled Too Good. So you're tuned into Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio and you're with me Lauren and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Ada Sehan who is a lawyer and human rights researcher working on policing and national security, and one of the founding organisers of Mahala. Thanks for joining us, Ada. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having us on. So, um, I thought I would let you introduce Mahala um, and tell us what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Mahala is a community hub for the Middle Eastern and Anatolian diasporas in Melbourne. Um We are currently only online because of COVID, unfortunately, Um, but we are um, currently operating on Instagram. Um, So where 
your listeners can look us up. That would be great. Um, we're at Mahala Melbourne. Um, and our aim really with Mahala is to kind of build and strengthen a progressive and a vibrant um, Middle Eastern and Anatolian diaspora community in Melbourne. Uh, in particular, we want to engage younger people, some of whom may have been born in Melbourne um, or come when they were young, but who might not really be involved in existing kind of more established community organisations. Um, so, yeah, we really want to provide a space where people from these communities can connect, can come together, can engage in kind of collective activities, be they creative, be they fun, be they political. Um, the point is really to kind of foster a better connected and more engaged community of like-minded people mm. who come come from the Middle East and, and Anatolian region more broadly. I love it. When I was looking up, um, well, looking up your Instagram page, but then doing a bit of research, mm. I read that Mahala means neighborhood in Arabic. Yes. Yeah, it's um, a word that exists sort of all the way from, like, the Balkans to Central Asia. Like, wherever there's baklava, people say Mahala, basically, <laughs> to mean neighbourhood. So we wanted a name that was, yeah, intelligible to all the different communities in the region, um, but also, like, hints at the community-building ethos of the project. So, mm. um, And it's uh, understandable to people. Well, it's pronounceable to English speakers, and that's a lot of words in our languages are not. So, yeah. <laughs> It sounds like the perfect fit. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I was really excited for you personally to see that this had taken off um, because you have shared um, previously a bit of your, um, I guess, your family history, but specifically the type mm. of community focus that your parents have always had um, while yeah. living in Melbourne. And I was wondering um, if you would feel comfortable sharing a little bit about that because um, I feel like that's positioned you really well to make this an amazing hub for a new generation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess the project came about, um, was started sort of by myself, um, Lara Kurse, who's a writer and director, um, Aysu Kurujan, who's a teacher, and Majid Bayad, who's an artist um, originally from Lebanon. And at least for Lara, um, Aysu and myself, the three of us sort of grew up um, with parents involved in kind of radical community organizations that were connected to revolutionary movements in Turkey. Um, so in like the 80s and 90s, a lot of these groups were set up that corresponded to different leftist political movements in Turkey. A lot of people coming at the time were fleeing persecution and repression um, under the uh, fascist military dictatorship that ruled at the time. So these community groups were set up um, yeah, by my parents, Isa's parents, Lara's parents, um, really as a forum for a mix of political activism related to issues in Turkey, um, kind of social activities and events to bring people together in Melbourne, and also material support and assistance, obviously, to kind of the new immigrants and refugees coming at the time. So um, that meant a whole host of activities. There was a lot of kind of campaigning for comrades in Turkey who were stuck in prison. Um, we had like a Turkish communist summer camp <laughs> over New Year's Eve um, to provide, you know, a cheap way for people to go on holiday in our community. Um, there was also, you know, material help with people's asylum applications. Um, 
they had a slot on 3CR actually, which I oh. found out recently. <laughs> um, so there was a, a community radio element to it as well. Um, so yeah, we really grew up uh, with that kind of range of community events and and places for people to come together. And uh, we felt like there isn't really the same level of activity, nor is there a forum for younger generations whose interests might not completely align with the same kind of things that our parents were doing. Mm. Um, and that's part of the reason why we want to do this. I think there's also a general kind of sense of alienation, especially for um, the children of immigrants or people who came here when they were quite young who, I guess, have have a connection to a place and a culture but don't really have a way of experiencing that outside the home. Um, so those community groups really provided that space, but there's a lot less activity now. And, yeah, it's not necessarily things that um, appeal to our generation. So we kind of want to reinvigorate that but also make it a bit different. Mm. Amazing. Um, and to follow on from that, I guess, uh, the word inclusive is used in all the bios mm. um, for Mahala. And I think that's a really, that's kind of an our generation <laughs> type of word. Yeah. Um, what does that word mean to you in this context for your hub? Yeah. So I guess what we want to create is a community that is inclusive of all different types of people from the region. So there is, um, there has historically been a lot of division between the community groups that our parents set up. Um, and that's division along kind of, uh, ethnic and religious lines. It's also division um, along kind of um, different relationships in terms of where you're from in your countries of origin. I think that's something very common across sort of immigrant groups. You know, you'll have like, you, if you have five people from one country, you might have five different community groups each, you know, responsive to their particularities. So we want to create something that is just inclusive of everyone from mm. the region, regardless of kind of religion, ethnicity, um, gender, sexual orientation. Um, I think that's something that's really important to us. Um, and, yeah, I guess we are sort of taking inspiration from existing community groups like this that serve other communities. So, like, there are really great examples um, of things like, uh, so I lived in the UK for a while, um, and there's a group called Judas in the UK and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society here that do the same kind of providing a hub for young kind of radical creative Jewish people who might not feel at home in more traditional settings. There's the Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance here doing the same for Asian communities. So, you know, that's the sort of thing we're aiming for, which is open to anyone from, you know, these quite broad, broadly defined communities. Fantastic. And so um, just once again, for listeners who are interested in finding out more, the Instagram page is the best best bet? It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. We are really looking forward to being able to do stuff in real life <laughs> when the lockdown all? ends. We've got some really <laughs> great ideas. Yeah, definitely. Um, we want to, you know, I think we do want to, there's, there's going to be a lot that we have planned, but I think especially when lockdown's over, we want to emphasize the fun stuff and really get together in club nights, dinners, poetry events, that kind of thing. Um, but for now, it's, yeah, it's Instagram's the best place to find us. Fantastic. Um, it sounds amazing, and I wish you all the best with it. Thank you. Thank you so much Thanks for so joining much. us today.
Yungaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter.